You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Fiona Pogson from Liverpool Hope University. Her paper was entitled Elizabeth Wentworth, Countess of Strafford and her role in the Viceregal Household. Um, yesterday, Naomi gave us a, a paper which explored um, the issues of dealing with a large body of correspondence. Uh, this is a very different kind of paper. I think this is probably an example of trying to make a little go a long way. <laughs> uh, there's not a lot of evidence uh, that I'm dealing with, but nevertheless, I think it does um, certainly carry some uh, significance. So in a, in a recent article published in The Court Historian, Rachel Wilson explored the role and activities of the early 18th century vice-rens, as she calls them, of Ireland. And her chosen time frame charted the significant development in the importance of the wife of the King's governor, the Lord Lieutenant or Viceroy, from an essentially very limited role at the start of the century to a position of importance as leading hostess uh, by the 1730s. Uh, for example, Lady Carteret and the, the Duchess of Dorset presided over social events such as anniversary balls, uh, musical performances and what were called drawing rooms, uh, which had helped to transform the Dublin court, uh, as she put it, from um, a dull, uh, virtually expendable entity to a quasi-regal institution and a central component of the Lord Lieutenancy. And, and these women, she argued, worked hard to help create and sustain political alliances or at least a measure of goodwill towards their husband's uh, administrations. And in summing up, uh, she drew a clear contrast between the role of the Viceroy by the mid-18th century and that of her predecessors, as we have here, gone uh, with the days when the Lord Lieutenant's wife was a shadowy figure, uh, known only to a few and rarely seen in public beyond a few state occasions. And it was that phrase that really got me thinking, a shadowy Figure Was it possible to, to find out any more about uh, 17th century uh, Viceroy's wives? So her description of this 17th century Viceroy's wife as a shadowy figure, I think is worth exploring further. Um, I don't think very much is known, although I'd be delighted to be corrected on that, about the activities of the first two uh, early Stuart Viceroy's wives, Lady Chichester and Lady Grandison, Although Letty Chichester was the daughter of the Elizabethan Lord Deputy Sir John Perrott and probably had a, a better prior understanding of life in Dublin Castle than her successors. And then with the third, uh, Lady Falkland, we know that her conversion to the Catholic faith embarrassed uh, and undermined her husband when he was engaged in a campaign at that very moment against Catholicism in Ireland. 
this paper aims to examine the role and activities of the fourth, uh, Elizabeth Lady Wentworth, later uh, briefly Countess of Strafford, whose husband served as Lord Deputy and, for a short while, Lord Lieutenant during the 1630s. And as I said, it draws on what is admittedly a limited range of evidence. Only two of Lady Elizabeth's letters to her husband have survived. Um, and there's one other letter. Um, I was very pleased to hear yesterday that the library does have the, uh, the microfilms of the Strafford papers. Uh, a word of warning, the, um, the guide is not entirely always accurate, and this is one example where it is not accurate. Um, there are uh, more items catalogued, uh, apparently, as being by um, Wentworth's third wife, but um, they're mostly not uh, by her. He had a sister-in-law called Elizabeth, um, and a sister-in-law called Anne, and, and some of the letters are wrong, are, are theirs, actually wrongly catalogued. We only have three, as far as I can work out, uh, of um, Lady Elizabeth's correspondence surviving two uh, to her husband. Although what we do have um, are many more letters um, that have survived that are from Wentworth. Um, and his habit of replying to letters, which is very useful in his political correspondence as well, point by point, means that it is possible to get a good sense of what she wrote to, to him. 24 of his letters to her were printed or summarised in 18th and 19th century publications. It's not entirely clear where uh, most of them are now. Um, and taken together, this correspondence therefore forms the main uh, source of evidence for this paper, supplemented by other references from the Strafford Papers and the State Papers relating to Ireland, and some important contemporary accounts of Wentworth's uh, deputyship. Now, as, as Dougal Shaw has emphasised, one of the ways in which Wentworth tried to enhance the authority of the Viceregal Office was to use art and ceremony to enhance his status as the uh, King's representative. Um, um, but neither Shaw... Um, nor any other scholar has really discussed the potential significance, I think, in this context of a very important uh, aspect of the court of Charles I, didn't press it hard enough, uh, the role of the Queen, uh, or the ways in which the female qualities of, of beauty, uh, chastity, okay, uh, fertility and mercy were presented as complementing uh, the male virtues uh, of authority, wisdom and strength. Now, much recent work has appeared on the portrayals of the royal couple in both art and in the mask uh, text of the period and the significance of the royal marriage in Charles I's vision of kingship. And some of the surviving art of the period suggests an interest by some of Van Dyke's other patrons in celebrating the importance of their wives uh, or their daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law. So we have a couple of examples here. Uh, the well-known portrait of the Earl and Countess of Arundel um, with the, the Countess quite prominently there. And the next example, the, the daughter-in-law, the family of the fourth Earl of Pembroke, with the, uh, the highlight clearly there on Mary Villiers, daughter of the, uh, of the late royal favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. We uh, now know much more about the political interests and activities of aristocratic women in Henrietta Maria's household, uh, following Sarah Wolfson's doctoral research, and in the Irish context by the work of, of people like Carol O'Connor uh, on the Kildare women and Anne Maria Walsh as, as well. So I think in, in these contexts, then, as, as well as what we understand with the importance activities of the uh, 18th century vice friends, I think it's worth asking whether there is any evidence that Charles I, Lord Deputy of Ireland, expected his wife to fulfil any kind of political or social role that could enhance his position as viceroy, or was her role to be essentially the same as that of the majority of women married to peers 
and senior gentry focused uh, mainly on household management and care of the family. So Elizabeth Rhodes, uh, her maiden name, his third wife, uh, was the daughter of a Yorkshire gentleman. Uh, this was once the, uh, the House of the Rhodes family. It's long gone now. Um, she was not the daughter of an earl, uh, as his first two wives had been. When they married, she was about 18. He was almost 40 uh, when they were married privately, uh, probably in September uh, 1632. Um, it, was, it was being commented on on the 1st of October, uh, less than a year after the death of his second wife. And Wentworth appears not to have presented his new wife at court or even mentioned his marriage uh, to his political allies, prompting a warning um, from Archbishop Lord that rumours were circulating about his personal life. Um, and Wentworth's eventual reply almost a year later uh, took him before he finally referred to this, um, claimed that he simply hadn't wanted to bother Lord with what he called women's matters um, and claiming, uh, maybe rather ungallantly, that he would not have married again um, if he already had had more than one son. Um, and that he said he'd, he'd married a gentlewoman, as he put it, without disparagement either in blood or education. He had not sought a fortune, as he put it, a larger fortune that would have consequently taken a great piece of my estate from the heir of my house. And I think these comments suggest that he'd given much careful consideration to this third marriage, but he appears not to have considered the consequences of marrying quietly after uh, the sudden loss of his second wife and rumours that he caused... Lady Arabella's death by hitting her when she was heavily pregnant um, seemed to have been fuelled by the secrecy of this, of this new marriage. Now, uh, Wentworth's uh, biographer, C.B. Wedgwood's explanation for the arrival of the new lady that went with in Dublin six months earlier than her husband was that he shipped her off to Ireland um, in response to these rumours circulating about the relationship and that he then kept her identity unknown uh, in order to avoid attempts to curry favour with her while he was not there. Uh, there may well be something in that. Uh, another possible explanation is that it was in response to growing pressure from the king uh, to take up his post um, in Ireland while he was actually intent on delaying his own uh, departure uh, until he'd, he'd got his measures in place to protect himself. He might have thought it sensible to send his wife uh, together with his closest associate, George Radcliffe. Oh, I'm not entirely clear if the king knew that. And certainly the children didn't go immediately. They were still in Yorkshire, uh, at least as late as June. Uh, whatever the explanation, two surviving contemporary accounts indicate that her status had not been made clear before he arrived in July. Um, she was described as a concealed lady um, in one report and in another uh, known only by her maiden name. So what then was the role of the uh, Lord Deputy's wife? Well, her primary responsibilities do seem to have been to bring up her stepchildren um, and any future children of her own and manage her household. A uh, son, Thomas, was born in September 1634, but this must be the unnamed child who is noted in Sir James Ware's diaries as being buried uh, in Christ Church in April 1636. Uh, a daughter, Margaret, was born late in the 1630s, about whom little is known, other than that she survived into adulthood. There's a, there's a portrait uh, of her. But for most of her marriage, Lady Elizabeth's life seems to have revolved mostly um, around her, her three uh, stepchildren. William, um, the heir, was educated at uh, Trinity College and spent much of the year as a boarder. 
But we know that Lady Elizabeth had day-to-day -day charge of her stepdaughters. We know her rooms were close to theirs. Uh, we know a fair bit about um, their education, something about their lifestyle. Due to the autobiography of, of Alice Wandersford, later Thornton, daughter of the Lord Deputy's great friend, Christopher Wandersford, uh, she shared uh, her lessons uh, with the daughters of the Lord Deputy. Um, these girls received uh, the best education available in Ireland, um, including instruction in French, uh, music and needlework. Uh, dancing lessons, we know, uh, were given by John Ogilby, well known um, at the English court, whom Wentworth attempted to Ireland and appointed uh, Master of the Revels. We know that there were theatrical performances at the castle in Dublin, probably organised by uh, Ogilby as well. We know that New Year celebrations feature great feasting and carousing, as was reported. Um, we also know about some rather strange uh, things they spent their time doing as well. Uh, we know that the, the young women passed some of their spare time doing a particular exercise that apparently Lady Elizabeth encouraged swinging by the arms. They seemed to hang up and swing by their arms. It was supposed to uh, improve your figure and your posture, which probably became less popular after Alice Wanders had fell and uh, sustained quite a serious injury. Um, we know that Lady Elizabeth presided over a well-staffed household attended by French pages and at least some of their living quarters in the castle were richly decorated and furnished. Wentworth's predecessor, uh, Lord Falkland, reminded him to be uh, grateful for the fine gallery that he had added during the 1620s, which made the castle, in Falkland's words, less a prison. But the new Lord Deputy had set about improving the building as soon as he arrived. And Alice uh, Wandersford records the damage done by a fire uh, in 1638 to what she called the recently built stately chapel and the chamber above it. And decades later, when she was writing, she could still remember this room um, in detail as most richly furnished with black velvet, embroidered with flowers of silkwork in tent stitch, all fruit trees and flowers embroidered with gold twist. Um, although frustratingly, she does not say whether any of this work uh, was completed by uh, Lady Elizabeth. As far as the running of the household was concerned, she was evidently uh, in charge of it. Her earliest um, correspondence, surviving correspondence, which is actually a letter to uh, Wentworth Steward, uh, Richard Maris, uh, concerned the need for laundry and nursery maids. And she was uh, quite discriminating in her choice of staff. I pray send women and not girls. Um, and then she names two that she doesn't want. Uh, interesting. Um, her correspondence also sheds light on the way in which the new vice-regal household was supplied uh, with material goods. Large quantities of household linen uh, appear to have been sent. Uh, as far as I can work out from Yorkshire, this is definitely a note to the steward of the, of the Yorkshire estates. Uh, she sent a note detailing what had arrived safely in Dublin uh, and had not fallen prey to pirates. It lists exact numbers of different types of bed and table linen. Um, it includes over 80 pairs of sheets, uh, more than 400 napkins, nearly 50 table and cupboard cloths. And this doesn't include the damask and other fine linen, which had already been delivered um, separately. So she was clearly uh, taking, a, I think, an important role in the kind of material uh, equipping of the household. 
She was allocated regular disbursements of money, usually £100, in her husband's surviving financial accounts that, uh, that come from the, from the last um, year and a half of his deputyship. Some of this money was spent on the usual charitable activities expected of any noble woman in the period, but there, there are also separate entries in the Lord Deputy's accounts indicating that she, she was providing for a youth um, whom she clothed and she supplied with a prayer book. Uh, used by the name of Anthony Brabazon, and I, I don't know exactly what his relationship might have been to the, the more important uh, family. Um, her intention to provide a gift for a goddaughter, however, was regarded by Wentworth as, um, as he put it, an ill custom. Uh, it was quite an interesting um, reply of his. She, she had clearly recognised the expectation that godparents give something that reflected the importance of the role. Her husband seems to have shown a marked unwillingness to participate in the conventional giving and receiving of presents. Um, we know that he, he refused those offered to him upon his arrival in Ireland, and we know also that he, he was not the most generous of givers to the king uh, as well, according to uh, Felicity Heal. Um, um, one point I find very interesting is that his actual first New Year's gift to the king, um, 1634, uh, was actually an ingot of what was in effect the king's own silver. Um, he gave him the first fruits of the royal silver mines. He sent this large ingot over, uh, the king's own stuff that he got. Uh, so, in other words, Lady Elizabeth's intention, I think, to fulfil the customary obligation was expected to defer to her husband's more unusual approach. Wentworth's letters to his wife while travelling around Ireland and during his visit to England in the summer of 1636 indicate that he kept her informed of a, a wide range of matters, including developments on the continent during the Thirty Years' War, the progress of the Earl of Arundel's embassy to Vienna. Um, she knew about the progress of his legal case against Sir Piers Crosby, which became a very controversial episode as it drew in members of the Queen's entourage. And he told her, as he put it in your ear, that the King had commanded him to come back to court before leaving for Dublin. That, at that point, that was when he was clearly, I think, hoping in 1636 that he would get the grant of an earldom um, then. And I think that suggests that she knew about this most sensitive of matters. And when writing from uh, Clonmel in 1637, um, he kind of took her through a, a series of descriptions of, of uh, ladies of their acquaintance. This is my uh, reference here, Naomi. Uh, he started with the premier peeress in the, in the country, the Countess of Ormond, um, who he described as not so inclined to be fat as we thought she was at Dublin. Uh, so he must have gone on a bit of a diet. Um, and his postscript then was an apology for having forgotten to notice what these ladies were wearing. So we, we get the political news and we get the descriptions of, of ladies of their acquaintance. Much of what she wrote from the couple of surviving letters and indeed his replies back uh, consisted of news of the family and their wider acquaintance, illnesses, pregnancies, travels around the country. But a couple of points, I think, related to more serious matters. Um, one of, of Wentworth's comments, let it not trouble you with whom I am angry or not angry, for I will warrant you it shall do nobody any great hurt, and it suggests concern on her part about his attitude towards uh, someone. And she was evidently approached by the French-born Lady Tyrconnell, you know, that she, she passed on her prayers and good wishes for the Lord Deputy. Now, if, if these were attempts on, on her part to, in, in, to intercede on others' behalf, Wentworth seems not to have encouraged them. 
Now, aside from the from the death of her little son, uh, therefore in 1636, she seems to have enjoyed a, a comfortable life, a successful marriage in the early modern sense, a, a partnership uh, based on trust. We know he kept his account books in a trunk in her closet, and on one occasion he asked her to search for some paperwork that he needed, and he relied on her to ship it across to England as quickly as possible. And her letters, I think, indicate that she was a sensible a thoughtful woman who certainly did not deserve to be dismissed as she was by Wedgwood as rather silly. Um, nor could it have been the case that she was, in Wedgwood's words, too young and inexperienced to fulfil any difficult public duties, at least not throughout her entire uh, time in Dublin. And while the wife of the Viceroy in this period was, was clearly not playing the political role that some of her 18th century successors developed, there is some surviving evidence that does shed some light on the part she was expected to play on ceremonial uh, occasions. So Lady Wentworth was formally uh, presented to the political elite of Ireland after the conclusion of her husband's installation ceremony on the 25th of July, 1633. Although a contemporary first-hand report um, by Walsingham Gresley noted that the newly arrived Lord Deputy went immediately to her on his arrival two days earlier and refused to see any visitors until the following day. Now, Gresley's detailed account noted the assembly of the Lords Justices and the rest of the Privy Councillors in the presence chamber of Dublin Castle before they trooped through to the gallery where they met Wentworth and then they processed together to the council chamber where he took the oath of office um, from his Yorkshire friend Christopher Wandersford, who'd been installed the day before, I think, and received the sword of state. The party then moved back to the presence chamber where the new Lord Deputy performed an action which was described in some detail as it clearly struck Gresley as uh, significant, um, as he put it. Apparently, coming before the cloth of state, he made two low, two low and humble courtesies to the King and Queen's pictures, which hang either side of the state and fixing his eyes with much seriousness showed a kind of devotion. Now, these two uh, pictures, I've taken these from um, galleries, but they are the, the, the same versions of, of the paintings that still are held in the, in the Wentworth uh, collection. Um, Lady Juliet Tadgill um, still owns them. Um, Wentworth had been given these two full-length portraits by Charles, who presumably intended them to be displayed uh, prominently in, uh, in Dublin Castle. So although we haven't got any absolute evidence, it appears that these are the portraits. Now, while the gift of a portrait of the king is not um, maybe particularly surprising, the inclusion of a portrait of the queen um, has been uh, seen as significant, um, particularly by Oliver Miller. Now, the formal proceedings appear to have been an entirely male affair, aside from the attention paid to the portrait of the Queen. But the party then moved um, back into the, into the privy chamber. Uh, and at this point, the Lord Deputy then formally acknowledged his wife uh, by presenting her to be saluted, as, as Gresley put it, by the justices with a kiss from each of them. And she appeared to be there, accompanied by a group of ladies, um, annoyingly only one of whom is named, uh, again, Lady Ty Connell, I think, because of, of the interest uh, maybe in her. Um, Wentworth had, had evidently uh, not um, introduced his wife 
during the uh, uh, the visits of leading uh, political uh, figures on the previous day. Um, Gresley points out that it's a kind of first presentation, uh, but seems to have deliberately staged this formal meeting to happen after he had technically taken office um, and only very shortly after the courtesy um, he had showed to the portrait uh, of the Queen. Now, although no ladies took part in or even witnessed the ceremony in the presence chamber on the 25th of July, one of Wentworth's letters to his wife indicates the importance he placed on her attendance and conduct in this important space in the Viceregal household. Writing to her from his new house at, at Nace in September 1637, he discussed his plans for his journey back to Dublin and he made it very clear that he did not want her to meet him on the way as he intended to make uh, a grand entry. Um, as he put it, he was, uh, he was going to come into town with much company and the sword uh, before me. And he went on to tell her that in which case you will find the deputy's wife never came, nor, indece nor indeed decently can in her coach, without being either sooner or later uh, than were fit. So certain conventions apparently existed governing the manner in which the Lord Deputy's wife um, should welcome a husband back to Dublin. It was presumably not seen as appropriate for her to hang around waiting near the, uh, the gates of Dublin with a crowd of onlookers maybe staring at her. Instead, he specifically stated that she was to meet him in the presence chamber, presumably as, as part of a formal uh, reception to conclude his ceremonial entry. And this contrasts strikingly with, with his initial arrival in July 1633, where, where on the Tuesday, on the 23rd, um, he had arrived very early in the morning, um, kind of partly being ambushed by the Earl of Cork, who kind of managed to bring him into Dublin. And as Gresley's report put it, he, he went immediately to bed to his lady, uh, I presume he kind of got there early enough, jumped into bed. So a very informal meeting in that on that first uh, arrival in Dublin. But that was before he had been installed as uh, Lord Deputy. And this formality of his entry in 1637, I, I presume, probably was seen on other occasions when he returned to Dublin from some time out of the, uh, of the city. When it was request early in his deputyship that the king command the intro introduction of restrictions on access to the presence chamber and impose a strict order to remove hats while in the presence through the portraits of the king and queen, I think further underlines the importance of this space and the significance it had for ceremonial. So I think it's likely that this particular space was where the elite of Irish society encountered Lady Elizabeth in a formal setting on at least several occasions uh, during his deputyship, and that the presence of these royal portraits of king and queen prompted careful consideration of how she should conduct herself before them, as well as the assembled audience. So in conclusion, um, there's no evidence that Elizabeth uh, Wentworth, Countess of Strafford, played the public role of leading society hostess, developed uh, a century later. Her life appears to focus mainly on her family and her household. There's some fragmentary evidence that she was approached by people eager to secure her husband's favour, but no evidence that he employed her to help create or maintain uh, political connections. And in large part, this reflects the culture of power expressed by Wentworth's deputyship. It was assertive, putting it mildly, it's often abrasive. Um, his administration intended to impose royal authority 
on the political elites of Ireland not negotiate uh, for it, and its preferred means were threats and legal forms of harassment rather than entertainments. He'd governed the north of England in a very similar manner while married to his second wife, an earl's daughter, and again, there's no evidence that Lady Arabella had any um, particular role there as the wife of the Lord President. But what is clear, however, is that Wentworth understood there to be some form of protocol in existence with the conduct of the Lord Deputy's wife and wished her to comply with it. Um, but presumably it was not very well known as he had to explain it to her. And um, we might ask questions about this. Who was telling him where and how the Lord Deputy's wife should greet her husband? And it is interesting, perhaps, that he was keen to follow this particular aspect of protocol, given that he had refused to receive the conventional welcome gifts. And indeed, he'd received the sword of office uh, in the council chamber rather than in the usual venue, uh, Christchurch. Again, another a change that had attracted contemporary comment. But again, I think it serves to underline the importance of Dublin Castle as a seat of government and ceremony. And I think that's reflected further in the improvements that he'd, he'd begun making to the physical condition of the castle and accompanied by the care that she had taken clearly to properly staff and supply and possibly furnish the viceregal household. The hanging of a portrait of the Queen in the presence chamber in Dublin Castle and went with undoubted familiarity with other portraits of the royal couple and his knowledge of some of the court masks may well have enabled him and his wife to understand the important role of the Queen in the King's vision of royal authority. Some of the King's ministers and courtiers chose to follow the example of their master and commission works that underlined the importance of women in their family. What I think is interesting is that other members of the political elite, however, did not do so. And indeed, the, the memorable um, double portrait of, uh, of Wentworth presented him hard at work with the Secretary of State. The portrait that I showed you right at the start is clearly a restoration portrait. There's no evidence that there was ever a portrait of her commissioned uh, during the 1630s. So images of the Royal Partnership then, I think, clearly had varying degrees of influence on the ways in which others chose to represent their own marriages and families. I think the carefully staged introduction of Lady Elizabeth to the political elite of Ireland, as well as later formal greetings in the presence chamber, suggests some awareness on Wentworth's part of the more recent emphasis on the female partner alongside a wish to respect some, if not all, um, older conventions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes, and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.